Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Mandy Robotham's very first book, The German Midwife, was an international bestseller, and two books later, she hasn't looked back. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on The Joys of Binge Reading, Mandy talks about where the idea to write a book about Hitler's baby came from, why she thinks World War II stories are still so hot, and how she transitioned from being a midwife herself to a full-time author. But before we get to Mandy, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Mandy's books and her social media, as well as a full transcript of this conversation. And while you're there, why not leave us a suggestion or a comment? We love to hear from you. But now, here's Mandy. Hello there, Mandy, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And hello, New Zealand. Oh, yes, in New Zealand. That's right. And where are you now? Tell the people. So I'm in the Cotswolds in the UK, which I suppose is the, it's the West Country or considered to be the West Country. So I'm about nine, no, I'm about uh, 45 minutes from Bath and Bristol and in between Gloucester as well. So in a, in a little town called Stroud in between all of those. It's one of the most picturesque parts of England, I think, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful. We're very lucky to live here. That's wonderful. Look, now getting into your writing, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you just felt you had to stop doing whatever you were doing and start writing fiction? Well, I've wanted to write a book since I was about nine, but then a lot of people do. They they think they've got a book in there somewhere. So... I think, though, when I felt like I really wanted to do it is when my children had, had grown enough that they didn't need me so much anymore. And I'd been saying for years, oh, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book. And I was a full-time midwife. And then suddenly I thought, well, it's not going to write itself. You just have to go out and do something about it. You have to write it. And so that's when I joined a couple of writing groups, which, you know, a little while later led on to me doing the Masters in Creative Writing. So really, I think that was a catalyst. I just thought, come on, pull your socks up. It won't write itself. Yes. Now, you appear to have enjoyed instant success because you've written two books so far and they've both seemed to have had very, very good sales. You're a Globe and Mail, USA Today, and Australian Kindle, US and Australian Kindle top seller. That's a pretty remarkable achievement, but I doubt very much that it did happen overnight. Tell us about that. No, I mean, like like many writers, I went through a fair few rejections with the first book. Lots of people saying, we don't know where this fits in the market. I don't know what this is about. And then I would question whether, you know, is this a really, really silly idea? You know, the idea of a midwife having uh, helping Hitler's baby. And then I would question it again. And but I don't know, something in me told me that I had, had faith in the book. And, and then I was just very, I was on the point of, of giving up for about six months. I just thought, I'll take a break from writing. I couldn't deal with the rejections again and again and again. And then a friend of mine called um, Lorraine Ferguson, who's a writer, 
And she said, oh, look, Avon are taking open submissions without an agent. And so I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And I popped it off to them. And then I completely forgot about it. And about three months later, that's it. They came back and they said, we love this book. And uh, it was it, it was a jumping around the room moment. I can tell you that. Getting yes. that email. Yeah. Now, as you've mentioned, that book was called The German Midwife. And well, it looks today like it had a very pl- fascinating plot line. It was a story of a prison camp midwife who was charged with the care of Eva Braun, who's pregnant, and all of the philosophical and moral questions that raises about does she serve the Third Reich? she loathes and keep the baby alive or or what does she do now how on earth did you get to start out on that sort of twisted story well there's always a thing in writing is write what you know so I felt that my first book should be about midwifery since I was in in the middle of it and embroiled in it at the time and then there's always things we we midwives chat a lot about births afterwards you know oh that was a beautiful birth oh oh that was fantastic oh what happened here so we chat a lot and we talk about the sort of minor morals should you tell someone this is it worth mentioning that and I it got me thinking where would our morals go to if we were really really tested would there be a certain situation where we wouldn't actually want to help or we hold back a bit from helping a certain mother or a baby and I got to thinking well there's only one family line that I can think of at the moment and and that you know and then it mushroomed from there really yeah how long ago was that when was that book published so that book came out in 2018 but it had been about Ooh, three years in the sort of writing, making, marketing, selling, that sort of thing. So it had been quite a while in that. And then The Secret Messenger came out in 2019. And now I'm on to uh, The Berlin Girl, which will come out um, later this year. Sure. But already at that time, though, World War II uh, historical fiction had started to really rise in popularity, hadn't it? And have you got any idea why that popularity seems to be so hot at the moment? Um, I think it's just because it's one of those periods in, in still in relatively living history in that there aren't that many survivors still around, but there are relatives of those survivors. And it was such an, a, you know, I think we kind of divide up the 20th century and is pre-war and after-war, don't we? Yeah. Such an iconic, catastrophic point. Whether or not we'll talk about the pandemic in those sorts of ways later on in in history, who knows? But it was such an iconic period of time that I think people, they they don't want to forget it. And I don't think we should, because I think we should never do it again. Yeah. But it is interesting that that period was already quite popular and yet you still had difficulty at the beginning finding someone who could see the potential in the book. I think it was because, it, it's right, it doesn't really fall into, I didn't write it as a World War II book, it just happened to be set in World War II, I didn't write it as a romance, it just happened to have a romantic line to it, I didn't, I just I was quite naive to the marketing and the publishing world, incredibly naive, and I just wrote a book and I think that's probably what a lot of debut authors do they write a book and I hope it plops somewhere into the market yeah and I was lucky enough that Avon did see that potential yeah yeah and it became an international bestseller I believe didn't it Uh, uh, yes and you know I'm still pinching myself today about that (laughs) 
Now, just for those who who might not have heard the storyline, that pregnancy was definitely a fictional one, wasn't it? Yes, it definitely was a fiction. And I make a real point of that saying in the author's notes uh, in the book. There's been lots of speculation as to whether um, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun had a child, but there's no real basis to it. It was it was my imagination doing an, an alt, what they call alternate history, a what if, what if Hitler had won the war, what if he'd had a child, what if. So, the, yeah, you know, it is a complete fiction. Mm. But it does raise that interesting question of, of how much you respect the history and how much you allow yourself to have some writer's imagination, the blending of fact and fiction. Do you speak or write German and how much research did you do you have to do for all of these books? I don't write or speak German and at the time I'd never been to Germany since I've been to Berlin and, and in fact I'm trying to get there again at the moment. But I think, you know, how writers used to do their research without the internet is a, is a mystery to me. There's, I, there's a lot of research. So there was a lot of internet to start with, a lot of books, a lot of diaries, memoirs that I read, and then going down to the British Library, which is a, a fantastic resource in London, and actually trawling through newspapers and some quite rare books and rare texts that they've got. So it's using a whole selection. But yes, it's a lot of time I spend my nose in a book. So getting the facts right is important to you? Yes, yes, it is. And there's a certain point where you have to think, no, this is a fictional book. I can stray from it. But I think there was a certain point in the book where I really wanted Eva to have the baby on D-Day. I thought that would be a really a good point. And then I discovered that Hitler was actually at the Berghof on D-Day for, for real. And so I, I had to sort of move it um, somewhere because somebody in historical circles would pick that up. Yes, yes, yeah. Now, your latest book, The Secret Messenger, moves between contemporary London and Venice in 1944, and it involves the Italian resistance. Now, we've heard heaps about the French resistance, but very little about what happened in Italy. And I wondered what drew you to that story and how you kind of found that under a toadstool or something. How did that come about? Well, I think um, HarperCollins, uh, even HarperCollins were very keen for me to do another wartime book. And I don't visit France very much and I don't speak French, um, but I do go to Italy and I um, adore Venice. And so I started to sort of look around Europe and find out where there were pockets of resistance. And I had a look at Venice and I was really surprised to see how little there was written about it, that there was definitely um, an Italian resistance in Venice um, and across Italy, really brave women. But there was very little in Venice itself. And I was very lucky enough to find somebody whose PhD had actually been about the resistance in Venice. And I made con email contact and he became a, a really good resource for me. But again, I went to Venice and I poked around a lot of different bookshops, old bookshops and tried to find photographs and so yeah that was quite hard research that one yes and do you do you read or speak Italian no <laughs> in any of these I don't I'm um, very bad at languages but you'll be amazed at how a little bit can get you by and generally Europeans are fantastic at speaking English thankfully that's lovely and that person that became your resource he he almost got himself into the book as well didn't he in one of the characters 
Yes, I found that as I was researching, the the stream that was the contemporary stream that was set in London seemed to seemed to need him. He, he almost wrote himself into the book in, in a way because my search mirrored the search for, of the woman in in London. So he almost wrote himself in, and I did ask his permission, and and he was very happy for it. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So now the third one that's due out in in December, The Berlin Girl, set in pre-war Germany. And it's about a fledgling reporter from London who's posted to Berlin just before war breaks out. Tell us how this one came about. Well, I I used to be a journalist many, many moons ago before I was a, a midwife. And I was not a very good journalist, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> I worked on local papers. I wasn't very good at news. I was much better at features. And I sort of saw myself as wanting to be the, the Kate Ades and the, you know, these wartime correspondents and the Maria Colvins of the world. But I was not very good at it. So I think maybe there's a little bit of me projecting myself as to what I wanted to be in this. And I thought I wanted to. I really, the more I read about the war, the more I realised that people had seen it coming. It wasn't this massive, massive surprise. It had been brewing for quite some time. And so I wanted to get someone, like an outsider's take on what was happening in Berlin. And that's the the perfect thing about fiction is you you can plant somebody anywhere you like, as long as it's conceivable and believable. And there were a, a... vast number of women who were reporters, really, you know, feisty, strong, brave women who were very independent at the time. Fantastic. Um, You mentioned that you're trying to get to Berlin at the moment. Is part of the problem the pandemic? Is that causing you problems? Yes, well, I was due to go in April and of course everything shut down over in Europe here. So everything got cancelled over in April. So I moved it to October thinking that things would be fine. And then here we are in a in a virtual second wave. So I'm due to go on Saturday. Let's see if I get there or not. I've got a contact over in Berlin who says it's absolutely fine over there. I'm not worried about going. It's just whether we can get there. Why wouldn't you be able to? What would be the problem? The problem is if they need to quarantine, if we need to quarantine when we're over there, then there's no point because I need to go and do research. Yeah, and so do you know yet whether you have to do quarantine or not? Are they? No, not at the moment, but I'm keeping an eye on it day by day. Yeah. yeah. We'll just see how it goes. Look, with all that you, the research you've done with these three books, is there something that really stands out that surprised you or that you hadn't realised before? Is there one or two things that really stand out as being startling? I really like the small details, like the social history around people's lives that's what draws me to the war I think is that how people lived day by day how do they do their washing how do they do their shopping and where did they eat and you know people have to eat in, in amongst all of this so it's the little things there was there was a little nugget of information that my um, Italian lovely man gave me and that that when the food was short in and I, I use it in the book as well when the food was short they used to put up a rotten fish carcass and hang it above the kitchen table and then rub blocks of polenta on it for any kind of flavouring. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. oh, God, you know, that's fairly desperate. But actually, it was a really, you can just imagine the whole family around the kitchen table with this fish hanging between them. And I suppose the other one, well, the newest book, The Berlin Girl, was just how much, if you read the diaries of journalists, how much they saw it coming 
and the politicians were almost blinkered. They had on their blinkers. They just didn't want to realise that it was happening, that all the journalists and the analysts around them could see it coming a mile off. Mm. That surprised me more than anything, that how widespread the thought was that war was coming from quite a long way off. Yes, yeah. Perhaps moving away from the specific books to a slightly wider take on your career. You've mentioned being a journalist and a midwife. Give us a bit of a sense of how those previous jobs have fed into your writing as career and and how did that transition occur? Well, I became a journalist straight out of university way, way back in 1987 and I was a small-time local paper journalist and I worked on the Evening Standard in London for a bit and then I did a lot of freelancing and then nothing seemed to be changing and then I had a baby. I had my first son in 1994 and that was it. It was an epiphany. It was a blue light moment and I turned around to the midwife who was looking after me and said, I, I want to do what you do. Um, really? And, so, and then I spent, so I spent the next 23 years, uh, three years training and then 20 years as a midwife. But I was there was always an itch inside me that I was going to write this book someday from from as a from a child I wanted to write a book I couldn't believe that people could you know have a story in their heads that was that long I thought writers were so clever and I did a lot of article writing as a as a midwife and I never really left words alone but it wasn't until the children were older that I thought no I have to do this and it, it seemed sensible that my first book should be about what I knew um, mm. so well. Was it that experience of almost feeling that birth was a miracle that made you want to be a midwife? Was was it partly something like that? What do you think was really behind that light bulb moment? I think it was, I, I felt so special. I The midwives in, and we've got a wonderful maternity unit in Stroud Maternity here. It's a small midwife-led unit. And I had both my babies there. And I just felt so special. And I thought if I could make one woman feel as special as I do now, I felt so clever. They made me feel so clever. Then I, that's what I want to do. And, you know, I helped a lot of women through some tricky births, you know, beautiful home births. I was more at home than anywhere else. And so that's why you'll always see that in, in my births take place in, in the books in unusual circumstances. And that's because that's what I used to do. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you found it fulfilling for the time that you were doing it. I did. I loved it. I loved it. I think there's a point where you feel I'm coming to the end here. It's really intense. And then it gets a point where you get older and you feel like maybe you can't give quite so much. And I thought that's the point where I need to, to go. And that coincided, luckily, with the success of the books. So mm-hmm. I'm you know, really grateful for that. That was able to, able to go to full-time writing. Yes, that, that's it. How, so you wrote those books while you were still working full-time? Yes, I did. I wrote the first two while I was working full-time. So I do an hour in, uh, I generally write in a coffee shop quite a lot of the time. So an hour in the coffee shop before work and an hour after and then whenever else I could fit it in. Amazing. Fantastic. Thinking about giving advice to young writers that might be starting out now, what would you say to them was the secret of your success? It sounds like it might just be straight perseverance, but what would you say to them, any somebody starting out? I think there's a lot of luck involved and obviously you can't you can't organize that but I think it's about you know just do it. You have to write. I write every day whether it's anything to do with the book or something else I write every day and I think finish that novel 
there's so many people saying, I'm going to write a book or I'm halfway through my novel or it's getting there, you know, just get on and do it. Sometimes mm. it can be like wading through treacle and it can be painful, but just finish it, edit it and get it out there because there's, you know, there's no point. It won't get out there unless you get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the worst advice that you have received or perhaps heard other people giving to young writers? I think it's maybe don't write outside your genre. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, a, you know, you can write anything you like. It's fiction. Write anything you like. Just be prepared that you have to try and market it somewhere if you want it out there. But don't be afraid to go outside of your own. You know, there's a lot of people that say, no, just stick where you are. It's working. Write whatever you like. You know, it might not get published, but write it if it makes you happy. What You mentioned that when you started out, you were quite naive about the marketing side of things. What would you say that you've learned over this experience that you see things differently? Is there any particular ways in which you've changed your mind about things? I think it's that the, the, the marketing has such an impact on your success and your sales. If you're talking about success being in sales, success, you know, having big sales doesn't necessarily mean it's a great book, but it does mean to say that you can survive as a writer. So I think it's about how marketers see the book on the shelf. They literally picture it on a shelf somewhere and which shop, which chain of shops, you know, online, because there's such a big market there nowadays, online, whether it's going to go digital. So I think it's, I think about, not necessarily, it doesn't doesn't change the way I write, but I think I've learnt what the market needs out of me as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Look, turning to Mandy as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, we like to give people who are listening in some advice or guidance or recommendations for books that they might like to read. Your one, of course, but any others that you know of. So do you like to binge read yourself? And what would you recommend to others at the moment that you're really enjoying? I read a book recently by Jess Kidd called Things in Jars, which I thought was amazing. I do love a bit of historical crime. So when I read historical, it's usually with a crime element. And so I read a lot of Philip Kerr, who sadly died, I think it was last year. But he did a, a fantastic series, and they're mostly set in Berlin, of a grumpy old detective called Bernie Gunther. And his are... Fantastic books, such a so evocative, and I read a lot of those, particularly for research as well. I'll always read uh, a new Ian McEwan when it comes out, and I'm really looking forward to William Boyd's new one called Trio coming out, and that's coming out in the next couple of days, I think. So that'll be on my order. I really like the way that he he can write historical, but he can also write contemporary. And his book Sweet Caress, I think, was one of the reasons why I thought. You can write about um, correspondence as if they were real, and because he wrote a fantastic book called Sweet Caress about a journalist who I was absolutely convinced at the end of it was real, but she wasn't. It was completely fictional. <laughs> so, and have you always been a big reader? Always, yes. It was the it was the very one of my favourite books. It's still in my bookshelf now, called Harriet the Spy, a children's book, and I used to clutch it to my chest with my notebook. And walk around the playground, and that was the book that made me want to become a writer when I was nine. <laughs> Gorgeous, yeah. 
Look, we are coming to the end of our time together. So circling around and looking back down that tunnel of time, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? I think there's a temptation to say that I'd I'd start it sooner. I mean, I'm 55 now and you think, oh, this, you know, what if I started 20 years sooner? I could have so many more books under my belt. But actually, I don't think I'd be the writer I am now without my 20 years in midwifery, without the children growing up. So no, I don't, I don't think I would. I definitely wouldn't change doing the the masters in creative writing that was the real push for me that I met a lot of really good people great writers people I'm still in contact with now so no I would I don't think I would change anything it would have been nice to have the success earlier in life but I don't think it would have happened that way yeah yeah and what is next for Mandy the writer what are you working on now so I'm very happily contracted to Avon HarperCollins for books four, five and six. And I'm working on book four at the moment, which we're keeping under wraps, but it will be historical. And then five and six, I'm going to go a little bit further afield in Europe for those, but they will generally be wartime uh-huh. because uh-huh. apparently that's, that's what, the, what the readers would like. And I'm very happy to do that. So I've already started amassing my my uh, reading list for uh, book five while I'm writing book four. Was your own family affected too much by the war? Did you have grandparents that served or was there any um, talk in your family of the war as you were growing up? No, not really. My dad was about five when it started and 10 when it finished, but his recollections are wonderful. We used to get him talking about those. He was in London and he was a typical sort of bombsite urchin really I don't think his mother was uh, particularly good at keeping an eye on him and he would he had very much older sisters and they all went out with GIs and so he would be catching lifts on jeeps and they would be bringing him comics and bubble gum and he'd be selling them and to his friends he's got a lovely story about having to go under the kitchen table when one of the v2 rockets came down very close to their home so he had a lot of lovely tales that he could tell um, just about being a child in the war. But no, I'm, you know, I'm very luckily untouched by that. I didn't know my grandparents at all. So it really, I think that's probably my fascination is finding out what went on in people's daily lives. Sounds like it was a big adventure for him that it wasn't too traumatic. Yes, I think he had a, I think he had a ball. I mean, he was very luckily untouched. But uh, yeah, I think he he was one of those that really saw the war as a, as a point of freedom. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you like to hear from your readers and and when times are different, you probably do book, you know, meetings and things. Where can they find you online? And have you been too much affected by what's been going on around us? It has its cramped to a style in terms of being able to do book meets and things. Yes, the book, yes, it's unfortunate. The book festivals is something I really, really enjoy going to, you know, as a as a customer and as a and as a writer as well. So yeah, the 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 book things, but um, generally the writing, no, because it's all done online and at home. So I'm available um, on Facebook. Uh, it's Mandy Robotham, author and midwife, on Facebook. I'm on Twitter as Mandy Robotham UK. And I'm on Instagram as well. Although there's mostly my knitting on on Instagram. That's where I, I that's my knitting portal. Did you say knitting? Knitting. I'm a big knitter. I'll knit anywhere. 
oh, everywhere I didn't and know anywhere. That. <laughs> Tell us about that. What do you do with it? Uh, very odd things. I, I the, my last thing I was just knitted some vegetables for my son, who's been um, growing vegetables on his rooftop in the pandemic. And so I decided that while he harvested them and ate them, he needed replacements. So I knitted him some vegetables. <laughs> uh, Look, there's just one other thing that I must ask about before you go, and that is, just very recently I interviewed an absolutely fantastic Australian writer called Michael Robotham. And it seemed, it's an unusual surname. And, I, and, and it was when I was researching him that I came across your name. And at the beginning, I thought, oh, these two must be related. They must be at least second cousins or something. And I asked him if he'd heard of you. And he said, no, he hadn't. He didn't think you were related. But I have to ask you the same question. Have you, are you aware of Michael at all? Well, I'm simply aware because he's, he's had books out for a long, long time and they're on the shelves. But no, we're not related, not as far as I know. The name Robotham is uh, my my father's family history is very, very complicated and nobody really knows where the name Robotham came from. It's actually not his father's name. So, you know, it, it's a very complex thing, but that's, so we don't really know where it came from. Okay. Um, yeah. So I don't think we are. It's a funny coincidence because it, it is an unusual name and to have both of you doing well like that, it's, it's just nice anyway. Obviously not at all connected. <laughs> yes, well, you know, maybe, you never know, I might bump into him at a book festival one day. You get your um, genetic testing done by Ancestry.com and suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, it's wonderful to have had a chance to talk, Mandy. It really is. And it seems as if the World War II sort of period is going to be popular for quite some time yet. So all power to you writing these next three books. Thank you. And thanks very much for having me. That's wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.